Joel chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Give ear to the word of God. It says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares, excuse me, beat your plowshares into swords, and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Uh, bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the, the, the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earthquake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's uh, pray and ask him once again to teach us his word that we might have understanding and grow in our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you even for the book of Joel, which has so much to teach us, even in our own day, as far removed in so many ways down through the years uh, as we may be from it. There is so much for us as well to learn from it. Give us understanding into your word. Work in us by your spirit that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear 
Great things from your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants here. For it's in Christ's name that we pray all these things. Amen. Well, as I said, we're finishing up our study in the book of Joel this morning. A couple weeks ago, we looked at Joel chapter 1, and there we saw that the circumstances that Joel ministered in was a time of great calamity in the nation, in the, in the land of Judah. It was unlike uh, the very first verse of the first couple of verses of the book tell us uh, they were going through something unlike anything they had ever seen before, unlike anything their fathers and even their fathers' fathers had ever seen before in all their lives. There was a famine in the land of Judah. It was caused by great swarms of locusts and a great uh, severe drought. And it got so bad that uh, chapter 1 verse 9 says that grain offering and drink offering were even being cut off from the house of the Lord. Things were so scarce, they couldn't even bring their normal, their, their normal daily offerings to the temple, the offerings of grain and of wine. And this was the Lord's doing. This was not some accident. It was not a coincidence of any kind. God was the one that had done that. The locusts, the drought, all the effects of that were sent by the Lord, and they were sent by the Lord as a chastisement, as a judgment, in order to stir up his people to repentance, to, to return back to him. Chapter 2, we looked at that chapter last Lord's Day. And there the Lord calls on his people in verse 1 to blow a trumpet in Zion. He wanted them to sound the alarm. It's as if God saw his people as being kind of asleep at the wheel, asleep in their sin. And he called them to blow the trumpet, to sound the alarm, to awaken them to the fact that as bad as things had gotten, with the drought, with the locusts destroying everything, now, that was just a warning of a greater judgment to come. You know, you think about it, they probably would have had a hard time imagining things could get worse, and God is saying, in a sense, that was a warning shot. There's a day of the Lord coming, a more severe day of the Lord coming in judgment. In fact, it says the day of the Lord was near in verse 1. Their current calamity, the drought, the locusts, the lack, even the fact they couldn't observe the sacrifices in the temple anymore for that time, uh, was a, a warning of a more severe judgment to come if they failed to repent. Chapter 2, if you listened, if you were here and uh, observed with us last Sunday, the central point, the central message of maybe the whole book, but certainly in chapter 2 was God's call to his people to do what? To repent. In fact, he, he says it in a way, he says, return to me in verses 12 to 14. And the Lord had promised and prophesied through his prophet Joel, that uh, if they did that, if they returned to the Lord, if they repented of their wicked ways, that he would grant great mercy and compassion upon his repentant people. He would answer their cries for mercy and heal their land. He would send early rain. Uh, He would send abundant rain, the early and latter rain, verse 23, as he had before. And so what he would do in doing that was restore, he says, the years that the locusts had eaten. Restore the years the locusts had destroyed And not only that, but in chapter 2 we saw last Sunday that God was not just going to pour out rain in abundance. He was also going to do something greater than that, wasn't he? He was going to pour out his spirit in abundance upon all flesh. And as we know from Acts chapter 2, that means not not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. People from all nations were going to have God's spirit poured out upon them that they might repent and believe in Christ and serve and worship and follow him. And that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Well, here we're in chapter 3. 
giving you a brief overview and outline of the book in some ways. And in chapter 3, there is one last thing that has to be dealt with. One last thing, uh, and it's really a, it's, a, it's another example of God's mercies to his people, even though it may sound strange to us to think about it that way. What does he address here? The Lord addresses not just his people, he addresses the nations. Specifically, he addresses the enemies of, of Judah and Jerusalem, those who had uh, harmed them in some ways. These nations he addresses in some ways, no doubt, added grievously to the sufferings of God's people during this time of chastisement. You, know, you can imagine that the, uh, they were kind of rooting it on. They hated Judah, they hated Jerusalem and God's people there, and so when they saw God chastising his own people, they thought it was great. Who knows what kinds of things they did to them. But God calls them to account. He calls the wicked nations in verse 2 and in verse 12 of our text to the valley of Jehoshaphat, or the valley of the Lord who judges. That's what the name Jehoshaphat means. The Lord judges or the Lord who judges. He also calls them twice in verse 14 to the valley of decision. You know, now we might not have much understanding of why they would call it a valley. You know, our, the name of our church has the word valley in it. A valley is a place between hills or mountains. And, you know, when you fought a battle, you typically didn't fight on the mountaintops. You fought in the flatlands, in the valleys between the hills. It was a place where battles were fought and lost or won, and a place where judgments were done in that regard. And, and God was going to, in our chapter, restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem in verse 1. Uh, but how would he do that? What's one of the ways he was going to do that? He was also going to bring great comfort to his suffering people by judging their enemies. God often comforts his people, his suffering people, by judging their enemies as well. In other words, the message of chapter 3, as well as chapter 2 in some ways, is that our God was going to make all things right again. He was going to right the wrongs. He was going to restore the fortunes of his people, and part of restoring the fortunes of his people involved judging their enemies. He was going to repay the enemies of his people for the evil that they had done to his people. You know, if you think about it, I know in our culture, in our land, uh, we don't suffer much persecution. We might be decrying some of the things going on in our land, the way that Christians are often mocked and ridiculed, even the way that we have been prevented from meeting in public for worship. Uh, we might see that as some source of some kind of persecution, as light as it may be, or mistreatment, but... Uh, It's always been a source of great comfort for God's suffering church when he judges the wicked. That's You find that all throughout Scripture. You find it throughout history. It's no doubt at least partly for this very reason that we find the same kind of language that we find in chapter 3 here, uh, the harvest and the wine press, found towards the end of the book of Revelation. We just finished our study of Revelation, Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20, you see the image of the wine press and God trampling out his, his wrath, uh, the grapes of wrath, so to speak, in that chapter. Now, just as the Lord was going to restore the years that the locusts had eaten so that the vats would overflow with wine and oil, chapter 2, verses 24 to 25, even so, in a kind of an ironic sense, there was going to be another harvest in chapter 3, another wine press spoken of in chapter 3, And this wine press would also be full to the point of overflowing, chapter 3, verse 13. And what wine press is that? The wine press of God's wrath upon the wicked, upon those who would harm his church. 
That is the message of chapter 3, or a large part of it. One commentator, speaking of kind of the flow of thought in the book of Joel, from chapter 1 to chapter 3, says, Anguish for Zion marks the beginning of Joel's message. You know, chapter 1 into chapter 2. Assurance to Zion marks the ending. It begins with anguish, and it ends with assurance and with joy. In some ways, the message of Joel, what has been said, uh, is like, you know, kind of like the message of a lot of the prophets in the Old Testament, can be summarized in a New Testament passage written by Peter. 1 Peter 4, verses 17 through 18 says this. Peter writes there, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Judgment in Joel's day, as it often does, had begun with the household of God, didn't it? God was severely chastising his people for their idolatry and for their sin, from, in some ways, turning from him. The, the command, the, the, the pleading of God to say, return to me, implies that in many ways they had turned their backs on God. They were still going to the temple, they were still going through the motions, but in their hearts, as well as in their behaviors in some ways, they had turned uh, from God. Well, judgment began with the household of God, but that wasn't the end of the story. Even their restoration wasn't the end of the story. James Montgomery Boyce writes this. He says, but the fact that there will be a judgment of God on his disobedient people does not mean that God is forgetting about the sins of the ungodly or that he will neglect to mete out judgment to them. On the contrary, like waters collecting behind a great dam, God's wrath has been gathering and increasing as it awaits the day when it will be released in fury against individuals and nations. That is the message of Joel chapter 3. That's the message of Joel 3, that God was going to comfort his people, whom he had chastised, not just by restoring their fortunes, which he would do when they repented and turned back to him, but also by visiting judgment upon their enemies, even those wicked nations, especially those wicked nations he had previously even used as a rod to chastise his own people. How many times in the Old Testament do you see God chastising his people through a wicked foreign nation that worshipped other gods, and then show mercy on his people. But then what did he do? Think of Babylon and Assyria and Egypt and other, other lands. God judged them finally as well. They weren't getting off scot-free. They would be judged in due time. We saw in Joel chapter 2, verse 17, that wicked pagan nations around Judah would no doubt see the sufferings of God's people and say among themselves, as people do today, where is their God? When they saw God's people suffering, they thought, hey, what good does it do to serve this God? Look how he treats his people. Where is he? Why isn't he rescuing them from us? Is probably what they, they often thought. What they should have been asking if they knew the lesson of 1 Peter 4, what they should have been asking instead was, if God would chastise his own people in such a way for their sin and idolatry in such a severe fashion, then what hope do we have if we don't repent? That's what they should have thought. They shouldn't have said, where is God? They should have said, God's there. That God is doing that, and if God would do that to them, whom he loves, what is he going to do to us if we don't repent? 
That's the message they should have learned. To paraphrase Peter's words, they should say, if it begins with the church, what then will be the outcome for those of us who do not obey the gospel of God? That is what the wicked should be saying to themselves, wicked people, wicked nations, when they see God's people being chastised for our sins. Well, the first thing we see in our text in chapter 3, again, is that part of God's restoring the fortunes of his people involves the judgment of their enemies. Part of God's restoration of his people, the fortunes of his people, involves the judgment, his judgment upon their enemies. Look at verses 1 through 3. In our text, Joel writes there, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel. Because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land, they have cast lots for my people, they have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. Notice twice there God mentions his judgment of the wicked, of these nations, was on behalf of his people, on behalf of his heritage, Israel. God's just judgment, his restoring, is a part of restoring the fortunes of his afflicted people whom he had chastised. It was, it was part of making God making all things right. This truth explains the wording of many of the Psalms. You know, many of the Psalms, maybe you've read through them and you've come to one or two from time to time and thought, whoa, what is David saying here? How could David say such a violent sounding thing about the wicked? I think it explains even the wording of Psalm 3, which was our call to worship this morning. Psalm 3, maybe as I was reading it, maybe you were following along and you got to that one part and it kind of took you back a little bit. You kind of didn't realize that maybe it was in the scriptures. Look at Psalm 3, uh, where it says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Here it is. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. What's he saying? You punch him in the mouth. And it says, You break the teeth of the wicked. It's a violent image. But it's a violent image of God saving and redeeming his people. It's not that the psalmist is, is glorying in violence. He's not like our modern culture that uh, loves all these violent uh, MMAs and whatnot. It's not just that he glories in gore and violence. It's, it's God violently rescuing his people from their violent enemies. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people, say law. In other words, God's blessing upon his people is not in any way um, contradictory to him striking their enemies on the cheek. It's, in fact, part of it and is in agreement with it. Part of God saving his people necessarily involves him striking, in a sense, and judging the wicked, especially especially those who would persecute God's church. This should not be something that shocks you. This should not be something that makes you, you know, take, take yourselves back and, and, and be horrified and, and about it. Um, think about Revelation chapter 6, which we just finished that book not too long ago. Revelation chapter 6, John sees a vision in chapter 6 verse 9, quote, of the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They had been martyred for the name of Christ and for bearing witness to him. And what does it tell us that they said in verse 10? 
It says, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, and here it is, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? You know, in, in the vision, they weren't saying, hey, you know, we're up here, it's all good, doesn't matter. How long, how long is it going to be until you avenge our blood on the wicked on the earth? And God's answer wasn't, again, I've said this before, God's answer wasn't, oh, no, no, you've got that all wrong. We, you know, we don't talk like that up here. You know, we don't, that's not how we do things anymore. You know, in the Old Testament, I was a really mean, vengeful God. But now in the New Testament, I'm all grace and light and, and sweetness and light and all this. No, God doesn't change. God didn't tell them, oh, no, no, I'm not answering that prayer. God tells them to wait. He tells them to rest a little bit longer until the rest of your brothers who are going to be martyred, I'm paraphrasing, are put to death. In other words, wait for their sins to reach that limit. We don't know what the limit is, but God does. And when, when a nation, when a people, when a person reaches that limit, judgment comes. And God's word often warns us of it. The same kind of language, not just in Psalm 3, but it's the same kind of language is echoed throughout the Psalms. The same language of, of Revelation 6, how long, O Lord, and asking God and praying, praying for God to judge the wicked, those who would harm his church. Think of the many places in our own day throughout the world. Uh, this is not just an ancient history thing. Think about the many places throughout our world today where believers in Christ are violently persecuted and even martyred, put to death for their testimony to Christ. Think about places in the world like Nigeria, where believers, men, women, and children alike, even children in Nigeria, Christians, are being slaughtered by Muslim extremists. Today is the first week of May. Well, the first couple months of the year of 2020 have found hundreds of Christians murdered by Muslim extremists in Nigeria. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters in Nigeria, they are being hunted down and slaughtered without compassion by these extremists. Think of places like Iran. Iran, where Christian converts are often beaten and imprisoned for coming to Christ, sometimes even put to death in public for converting to Christ. You think in places like Nigeria and Iran, they don't pray, how long, O Lord, and pray it rightly? And do you think God is going to be mocked? Do you think God won't hear their prayers and judge their enemies. Think about places like communist China, very much in the news today, where pastors in recent weeks and months have been imprisoned, have been tortured and beaten, where church buildings have been bulldozed and destroyed, and the church driven underground. You know, we, we, we meet online in this place right now, and many of you, I, I trust, are, are participating and watching at home, but in China, they have to change where they meet. We found this out from our former members and people that we know that they've had to kind of go high tech and, and randomly sort of move the church around because for fear of being persecuted. It's the communist government there doing that. As we know, communism doesn't like the competition. They think they're God. They think the state is God. We should not be of the same mindset. Pray for the church in China. Pray even against the enemies of the church there, that God might convert them or that God might Judge them. Will, will God be mocked? No. Will God sit idly by as his people are brutalized by the wicked? 
It might seem like he's doing that. You might, if you lived in Nigeria, you might be forgiven for thinking it doesn't look like God's doing anything. When you think about Iran or China, it doesn't look like, maybe to the eyes of flesh, that God is doing anything. But there are reports, especially out of Iran, that the gospel is booming there. And so that persecution is no accident, it's no coincidence. God, God is at work, the gospel seems to be on the march there. And Satan's terrified, his people are terrified of, of what the King Jesus is doing. And so they're reacting in a violent way, but God will not be mocked. He will redeem and rescue his people. He will judge the wicked in due time, when it's time. Well, here in Joel 3, the Lord reassures his people that he will gather, he says, gather all the nations, verse 2, and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And he will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people. Now again, the name Jehoshaphat, very often, especially Hebrew names, have significance and meaning. Uh, Jeho, when, when I say Jehoshaphat, the first part of that word, you, you might think of the word Jehovah. Well, that's where it comes from. It comes from the word Yahweh or Lord. And so it's Jeho and Shaphat is the word for judge. So it's God, God the judge or God who judges or God will judge. That's that's the point of this valley, and it's named appropriately. It means the Lord will judge. God will judge. He will not be mocked, and he's going to judge the nations here in chapter 3. He prophesies of it. Now see, see again how personally God takes it when his people are persecuted and harmed. That's something that sometimes we don't, it kind of escapes our notice, but God takes it very personally when his people are attacked. In verse 4, the Lord speaks to the wicked nations through Joel. And look at what he says in verse 4. God says to them, What are you to me? Or what do you have to do with me? What do I have to do with you? What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? You know, what did I do to you that you're bothering me? Uh, I, if, if you are paying me back, he says, I will return your payment on your own head and what does he say? Swiftly and speedily. It may not seem swift to us. It certainly probably didn't seem swift to, to Judah's enemies in this at this time. But God says, I'm going to pay you back. You're paying me back. I'm going to pay you back. And it's going to be swift and it's going to be speedy. But what were they doing? What's God talking about here? He's talking about how they treated his people, Judah and Jerusalem. When they attacked them, who were they attacking? As far as God's concerned, they were attacking him. That's a bad idea. You know, the church, we, I mean, even more so now, the church is weak. The church is harassed and helpless, like a bunch of sheep wandering around. But we do have a shepherd. And he does guard his sheep with his rod and his staff. And he will judge the enemies. He will drive the lion and the bears away. When the wicked attack God's people, God takes it as an attack on himself. That should be a comfort to Christians everywhere, especially the suffering church all over the world. And think about this. What did the risen and ascended Christ say to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus? In Acts chapter 9, verse 4, what does he say to Saul? When he confronted Saul, what did he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? No. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When the wicked attack God's people, they're attacking God. That's how the Lord himself takes it. The Lord takes it very personally. Woe be unto them who would harm the apple of God's eye. 
They are, you know, in truth, they're not really harming the church ultimately at all, but they're putting themselves at great peril when they do it. The, the church is the apple of God's eye whom he purchased with his own blood, and he will judge those who harm it. Is that not why God judged Pharaoh in Egypt in the book of Exodus? Because they would not let his people go to serve and worship him in the wilderness. Is that not also implied in God's judgment in the New Testament on King Herod in Acts chapter 12? Remember King Herod, Acts 12 verse 2, it says, He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. He had him executed publicly. He was trying to show off his power. He was trying to ingratiate himself to the unbelieving Jews. He was putting on a show. And remember what he did? He took Peter. When he saw how well that was received, he said, hey, they love that. I'm going to get the big fish. I'm going to get Peter. I'm paraphrasing, but I'm going to do the same thing to Peter. But what happened? Acts 12.5 says, so Peter was kept in prison. And then it's one of the greatest words in Scripture that's often throughout the word. But. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Well, if you know the rest of the story, if you don't, there's your homework. Read Acts chapter 12. But not only was Peter miraculously rescued by the angel from prison, even though he was chained to guards, chains fell off, the gates you know, opened up, he was saved by the angel and returned to the church while they were praying. They almost didn't open the door for him, remember? They were, we're busy praying, not now. No, it's Peter. No, he's probably dead. It's his ghost, you know. Um, but what else happened in that very chapter? Not only was Peter rescued, although eventually he was martyred and beheaded uh, as well, or, or he was crucified upside down, rather. But it says in Acts uh, chapter 12, verse 23, that King Herod was judged, that he was struck down. It says, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think we are to understand that the prayers of God's people earlier in the chapter, not only were answered in Peter being rescued, they were also answered by Herod being struck down by the Lord. It's it's hard for us, even as you read it, you know, maybe the more familiar we are with, with these texts, it's hard for us to really grasp how awful, how wicked a person he was, how violently he attacked the church who was doing no one any harm. His His namesakes were always bad, and so was he, and God finally had enough. And God struck him down and killed him. Not only does God judge wicked individuals and nations in this life, but also in the final judgment as well, which this is a harbinger and a predictor and picture of. Well, not only does God promise to judge the nations on behalf of his people, but he eventually calls those nations, in a sense, to assemble for that judgment. In verse 9, what does he say? He actually calls to the nations. He says, consecrate for war. Let's go. It's go time. It's it's time. You want to fight me? Let's go. Let's see who wins. Consecrate for war. Then he says, beat your plowshares, verse 10. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. In other words, you better gather up all the weapons you have and whatever you have that could be used as a weapon, you better make it into a weapon. The time to take your farming instruments and turn them into weapons is now. This is the polar opposite of what God said to his people in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, where he said that in the latter days all the nations were to come streaming to Jerusalem, to the mountain of the house of the Lord. And it says in, in that passage, Isaiah 2, 4 says, He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. 
and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up nation or sword rather against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. This is that's a picture of heaven. It's a picture of God ceasing, making wars to cease and being the king of all the nations. In that time, they'll beat their swords into plowshares. But in Joel's time, it's the exact opposite, isn't it? Beat those plowshares back into swords. Let's let's fight. Now, notice, just like in, in Revelation, the battle's not described, is it? You have God calling them to war, and it's as if the battle was so short, there's not even a description of it. It's not even worth mentioning. And there's a instead the Lord gives a command, maybe this is even given to Christ Himself. It would seem appropriate. In verse 13, it says, Go in, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. Their evil reached the limit and it was time for judgment to come. And he says to go in for the wine and tread for the wine press was full. Now this actually mirrors the same language we saw in the previous chapter, doesn't it? In chapter 2 of Joel. In Joel 2.24 where the Lord promised to send so much rain, abundant rain again, so that, quote, the threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil, well, the Lord uses the same kind of imagery here uh, of the grape harvest and the wine press when he talks about the wicked. And it's the same thing he says, the same imagery he uses in Revelation 14, verses 14 to 20. There in verse 19, it says, uh, talks about the great wine press of the wrath of God. He borrows images right here from Joel chapter 3. Now, surely this is spoken of here, just like it is there, to comfort God's people as well as to be a warning to sinners. God's people will, by the grace of God in Christ, have an abundant harvest of God's blessings and his grace. But the wicked and the unrepentant will also have an abundant harvest. And that harvest will be of the wrath of God for their sins. Not just their sins against God, but especially their sins against God's people. You could say that in some ways, Joel 3, the the message of Joel 3, though it's spoken, in a sense, directly to the enemies of God's people, the message is really for God's people. It's to be a message of comfort to them that God will make all things right. In verse 14, Joel says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. That, that language, maybe you've heard this preached before, this passage Maybe you've heard this verse used in an evangelistic crusade of some kind or meeting. It's often used as an evangelistic appeal. And now that's probably not really the direct uh, meaning of the text. In fact, in some ways, it's the exact opposite. Um, as who's doing the deciding here in our text? Are the people? Is he calling people to make a decision? He's calling them to judgment. God is the one doing the deciding here and not the wicked. Uh, God is the one who's doing the deciding and the judging here, although I think this message is, in some ways, I think it's appropriate to use, if you use it the right way, as an evangelistic appeal. Because it's a warning of judgment. All God's warnings of judgment are just that. They, they are an appeal to the wicked to turn from their wicked ways, turn to Christ, and live. I think that is the meaning here. Uh, in, in Joel chapter 3 as well. We saw last Sunday God gives warnings of judgment uh, to come precisely because, what does Ezekiel 33 say? He delights not in the death of the wicked, but rather that he might turn from his wicked ways and live. God gives warnings 
over and over in Scripture so that people might turn from their sin while there's time and turn to Him and have life. And our text in verse 16, I think, in some ways is a summary verse of the whole chapter. Verse 16, Joel writes there, The Lord roars from Zion, He utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. The heavens and the earth quake, but, there's that word again, but the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. To the wicked, it's a terrifying picture. God utters His voice, and the heavens and the earth, all the created universe, shakes. We can't even comprehend what that would be like. But then he says, but to God's people, he's a refuge. He is a stronghold. They're not the ones shaking. We are not the ones shaken by God's voice there. Our Lord, even the Lord Jesus Christ, will roar from Zion one day from his throne and from the midst of his people. And the heavens and the earth will quake when he does. But he is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. And so I have to ask this morning to you, are you outside of Christ? Are you outside of Christ? Are you still in your sins? Are you still awaiting the wrath of God and his just judgment upon you? Or is the Lord Jesus your refuge? When you read this verse, verse 16, which side of the verse are you on? Is the Lord your refuge? Is he your stronghold in time of trial and even in the time of judgment? Don't wait for the valley of decision, for then it will be too late. And why is it that the Lord can be a refuge in time of wrath to his people? Why can he be a stronghold to his people in time of judgment? Because Jesus had no refuge on the cross. He took God's wrath in full for our sins on the cross. He took the wrath of his father upon himself in our place. The wrath that he did not deserve, we deserved. He deserved blessings that he gives to us. And he took the wrath of God upon himself with no refuge, that he might be a refuge for us in the day of judgment. So if you are still outside of Christ and still in your sins, flee the wrath to come, turn from your sins and turn to Christ by faith and live. Now the rest of the passage, the ending of the chapter, it paints a brief picture of the bliss of God's people in heaven, free from their own enemies in verses 17 through 19, no foreigner ever coming in the land again. Uh, the mountains dripping with sweet wine, the hills flowing with milk, and even a fountain, it says in verse 18, a fountain coming forth from the house of the Lord. That's a strange picture if you think about it. A fountain, fountains don't come from buildings, uh, but this was a fountain coming from the house of the Lord. What does that remind you of? Today is everything I read points us back to Revelation, but Revelation 22, the last chapter of the book, Revelation 22, verses 1 through 2, John tells us there of a vision of the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, where is it coming from? Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, flowing throughout the middle of the city of God, the New Jerusalem. Old Testament, New Testament, one picture, one message. Brothers and sisters, our God, whom we serve through Christ, will make all things right one day. It doesn't feel like it right now. Many things grieve us, many things cause us to mourn and to pray how long, especially our persecuted brothers and sisters. But God will make all things right one day. That's the message of Joel 3. That is the message of Revelation. It's a message of all of Scripture. 
As Paul says in Romans 8.18, the sufferings of this present time, what does he say about them? They are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us or in us. And even the judgment of the wicked, that is such a fearful thing for us to think about, even that one day will be a comfort, a source of great comfort for God's people. So let us serve our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Let us serve him in our generation and pray for the persecuted church, wherever she may be throughout this world. And let us trust that our God knows what he's doing and that he will one day make all things right. To him be glory in the church forever. Amen. Let's, let's pray.